Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thanks for coming along. Drought, floods, hurricanes, and severe heat. We've seen them all this year, and it's not over. The conclusion of scientists over carbon from the fossil fuels that we push into the atmosphere is to blame. And we'd better do something about it. Big finance, the banks and financial institutions of the world now agree. And they're banding together globally to do something about it by measuring the carbon content of their lending in a methodical way. To tell us about the bankers' move to green, we go to London and to Jan Wilhelm Boda of Guidehouse, the global consultancy, a key player in the carbon conscience of big finance. Welcome to the broadcast, Jan Wilhelm. Tell me, how did Guidehouse get involved with the banks and this extraordinarily interesting subject of the partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. How did that come about? It's, and as we, as we call it, uh, uh, PCAF. How did PCAF start? And how did a consulting company pull this together? Uh, yeah, thank you for having me, Devon, and it's great to be here. Um, we, um, it, the story of PCAF, um, started probably around maybe 10 years ago when we actually started looking at what the contribution would have to be for individual companies and individual organizations if they all wanted to play their role in meeting the international climate agreement that was signed in Paris, the Paris Climate Agreement. Initially, that led to a, an initiative called the Science-Based Targets Initiative through which large corporations are currently setting their greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. And then we realized, actually, that if you really want to have an impact, you need to move from large corporations to the financial sector, because that is effectively where a lot of these emission reductions are being financed. So about five years ago, we started working initially with a group of Dutch banks um, who were really interested in playing their part when it comes to hitting this international climate change agreement. Um, and this led to a, let's say, a coalition of the willing initially in the Netherlands, and slowly we started to expand internationally. The big break for PCAF, from our point of view, came very much probably about a year and a half ago, when actually we started working with Amalgamated Bank in the US and really started looking at how we could make this global. So working with Amalgamated Bank initially, then led to working with the right um, sponsor partners for us for this, leading to, you know, eventually with the, with the latest announcements, very large banks joining, you know, we've got obviously Bank of America, uh, Morgan Stanley, Citibank in the US, NetWest in the UK, Danske Bank in Denmark, amongst, you know, very large other banks in other countries in the world as well. Um, and that really is history. And, and what is it they're doing? What is this partnership doing? How does the accountability come in? And how will it influence policy? So the key thing, if you actually want to achieve something, is to actually first know what your current situation is, what your current emissions are. So what we realized about five years ago is that a lot of people were looking at the risks that are sitting in their investment and lending portfolios that is related to CO2 emissions, to climate. Um, but everybody was doing that using different methodologies. 
So if you as a financial organization, organization want to go from really understanding what your greenhouse gas emissions are, then go through actually disclosing that to the world, then setting targets and then actually doing something about it, you need to get the basics right. And that is what PCAF is focusing on, is really focusing on making sure that we've got harmonized methodologies to actually be able to report on greenhouse gases that are associated with financial products, what we call financed emissions. And as soon as you have done that, as soon as you have got your methodology right and you've started disclosing your emissions, you actually know as a financial institution where your biggest risks sit, but also where your biggest opportunities sit. Um, now, some of these big American banks have uh, for decades, well, for more than decades, for a century, have been financing uh, carbon intensive industries, oil, gas, coal, uh, and they're all heavy, heavy borrowers, the big players in the financial markets. How are the banks going to deal with that history going forward? So. And I, I think that that's exactly why you want to go through a proper process. If you actually know where your exposure sits, then you can disclose it. Then you can actually set targets to reduce your exposure to that. And then you can go into the next stage, what we like to call strategic asset allocation, where you actually bring your investments and your lending products in line with reducing your carbon emissions and thereby your risk exposure. And that would indeed mean that if you want to reduce that exposure, you would have to um, you would have to step out of certain sectors, or you would have to change the way that you engage with certain sectors. It also means that you can be smart about the type of companies that you invest in or that you lend to, when it comes to looking at how big the risk is that sits in those companies. You can have an energy-intensive sector, for example that makes product, products that are super necessary in order to keep society going, but you can be smart about which company in that sector you invest in. And in order to understand how you need to move your money around, how you need to be strategic and how you allocate your money, that is, that is where you, know, you start with measuring and then you go all the way through to strategic asset allocation. When you say where your risk is from a banker's point of view, are you talking about the environmental risk or the risk of putting more carbon into the atmosphere or the risk of denying an important client? We're getting to a, um, a point where um, being exposed to either physical climate risk, being exposed to either physical climate risk or to what we call energy transition risk is generally seen as uh, as a risk that needs to be taken into account. And it's a financial risk. It's, it's Yes, it's an environmental risk, but for a financial institution, more than anything, it's a financial risk. And when we talk about physical climate risk, we're talking about extreme weather events, for example. When you talk about energy transition risk, you talk about issues that you were just raising, like you know, at the moment you're invested in a company that, that produces electricity quite heavily based on fossil fuels. If the, if the whole world changes to decentralized or moves towards more decentralized renewable assets, renewable generation, that means that your fossil fuel generation may very well be out of the money uh, within the near future. So it's those, it's those two risks, both physical climate risk, extreme weather events, as well as energy transition risk, leading to, weather, to, to understanding whether or not you're exposed to that system and to that change in the right way and can deal with it in the right way.
Some people looking at this will think that when they look at the financial sector, which is about money, making it, lending it, etc., that this may be posturing. This may not be deep-seated. That if somebody comes along with a huge financial opportunity, they'll be all in. How, how, how are they going to have to change? And how are they going to have to change to overcome that expectation? So the, um, I think what you see in general is that if you look at, for example, if you look at the power sector, the power sector centralized generation has been leading to lower and lower returns in the last decades anyway. So what you actually see is a shift more towards services in the energy industry. So if you actually want to make double digit returns or high single digits or double digit returns, you need to move away from centralized large scale generation anyway. Um, and that is just, that's just the trend because of energy transition. That's the way that the world has developed and is, is developing further. So what you see is that the big asset managers, the big private equity firms, they are all, not all, most of them are picking up on that trend. They are moving out of centralized generation in general and moving towards those more double digit returns that sit on the services side. You're right though. I mean, if there is a large investment opportunity where that is fossil fuel based and companies do not look at the risk, the potential risk of investing in a stranded asset um, in the way that we believe they should, then there will be people fighting over those investments and money will flow into that sector. Um, an example, a very clear example is we're working with a couple of refineries at the moment where it makes a lot of sense for them to invest in a specific technology that would lock them in and using gas for the next 15 years. They actually, having looked at what's happening when it comes to energy transition, have actually decided that even though financially it makes a lot of sense, it does not make sense to be locked in having to use gas in this specific case for the next 10 or 15 years. So they're actually, they're actually deciding to not do it like that. So we do, but you're right. I mean, even though it is becoming more and more mainstream, there will always be pockets where people will make those investments. I, I see that Citibank has uh, set aside or will set aside $250 billion for investments in uh, uh, low carbon facilities. What will those investments be? Will they include carbon capture and storage or will they simply be renewable energy, which nowadays we generally define as wind and solar? Yeah, I think what we will see is um, uh, uh, on, from a technology point of view, there will be wind, there will be offshore wind, there will be onshore wind, there will be solar. Um, there will definitely be, they will definitely be looking at hydrogen opportunities. Um, and if you start looking at green hydrogen or blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen in combination with CCS, carbon capture and storage. Um, if you look at what's happening when it comes to hydrogen with the infrastructure discussions around it, how quickly the cost of green hydrogen is coming down at this moment in time. In the next couple of years, that is definitely going to be an important play. The other area where there is a lot of financial innovation taking place at this moment in time is when it comes to investing in energy efficiency for large corporations. Um, and if you look at the current situation that we're in, there's a lot of large corporations that have been hit quite badly by COVID-19, uh, which means that their balance sheets are a lot weaker than they were six months ago. 
At the same time, they have signed up to decarbonize their operations. So they actually need to start looking at a different way in how they finance their energy efficiency on site. So I would expect Citibank to focus quite strongly on that. And then last but not least, um, infrastructure is going to be super important as well. So if you look at the energy transition shift going from centralized generation to more decentralized generation, that will come with a different transmission and distribution infrastructure as well. So I'm expecting, I'm expecting that things like microgrids would potentially be very important for an organization like City as well. Big money, we're used to that. We know that banks lend huge sums, multi-billion dollar loans, sometimes syndicated. But what about the smaller projects? What about all the way down to mortgages? How does this movement affect that endeavor? I think what we, um, we see in PCAF is a quite a strong focus on mortgages. Um, there is obviously a direct um, relationship between physical climate risk, like extreme weather events, and the risk that sits in mortgages. I mean, think about properties that are being directly impacted by extreme weather events. Um, so by actually looking properly at the emissions that are associated with mortgages, um, you know, there is a, there is that there's the direct link, but there's also a, a potentially positive relationship. So, for example, you can reduce the emissions that sit in a mortgage product by by lending to homeowners, for example, to invest directly into solar that they can put on their roof, which would make that mortgage portfolio more resilient and thereby um, by being lower carbon intensive. Now, the U.S. is not part of the Paris Agreement anymore, uh, but the banks will be adhering to the principles of the, if they continue with PCAP, is that correct? Yeah, that's what the, that's one of the, the, the one of the things that um, is in the, in the commitment letters that uh, people sign. Um, in general though, what we see is that the bottom-up movement when it comes to decarbonization is much stronger, also in the US, than the Paris Agreement would ever uh, put upon people, so to say, or put upon a nation. When you were speaking a few minutes ago, you were talking about climate and its effect on investments, basically, mortgages, etc., homes. So, in fact, PCAP members are looking at externalities beyond what they've looked at traditionally in assessing financial risk and investment grade undertakings. Um, yeah, I think what's, what PCAP does is it takes step in allowing those financial institutions to internalize externalities um, and that is what you know I remember in the you know in the late 90s I was doing a project on externalities and calculating externalities on uh, for uh, it was all about CO2 at the moment in time for financial institutions but also the externalities of renewable energy as a whole and that was just a pipe dream at the time you know we thought you know this, this will never ever go anywhere but this is exactly what PCAF does. It, set, it sets the first step in allowing you to internalize those, ex, those real external costs. Um, I think the other thing is that because there are so many carbon pricing schemes in the world, for example, the EU emission trading scheme or the emissions trading scheme in California, you actually can start translating those, that emissions intensity that, into a real monetary value in one way or another. You can just actually look 
you can put a, a price on carbon that is either linked to a compliance scheme or a voluntary scheme, and you can actually do some forecasting internally over the next 10, 15 years, what that does. By doing that, you can really internalize it and put a monetary value on it, um, which I think is the nice thing about CO2 emissions as a, as a unit. How does PCAP work? Does it have a secretariat? Is there a secretary general? Are there people doing studies in an office? Are there, uh, how does it operate? Where is yeah. its headquarters, for example? Yeah, that's a very good question. The, the PCAP is not a standalone organization. It really is a coalition of members, of people who sign up to the principles of PCAF. There is a secretariat, and that's the secretariat that is being run by my colleague, Gil Lintors. Um, so we run, as guidehouse, we run the secretariat of PCAF. In addition to that, there's a lot of activities that take place within or under the umbrella, under the PCAF umbrella, effectively. There is methodology development happening when it comes to greenhouse gas accounting. There is um, there are a whole lot of um, activities aimed at outreach, making sure that more and more financial institutions see what is happening here, but also have an opportunity to provide input into the methodologies that we are developing. Um, and then we're also really working on um, understanding. Now we understand what the greenhouse gas accounting methodology is. We're also starting to look at what the next steps are when it comes to target setting, when it comes to disclosure. Um, so yes, it's a it's a it's a it's a secretariat, and in addition to that, there's a number of specific activities that take place within it. Very much focused on making sure that we get universally accepted methodologies by that are accepted by others and potentially outside as well. Uh, it had its genesis, PCAV, in Europe, obviously Holland in particular, but now spread throughout the continent. Now it's jumped the Atlantic big time. Is it moving faster? Is it more embraced in the US today? Has it saturated Europe and is this big growth here? And the next question is, what about the rest of the world, especially South America? So I think um, you're right. It really was developed initially in Europe. Um, it has, the market is not saturated. We're actually, you know, which is, First of all, we had NetWest joining relatively recently. It's a big um, British there, bank. It's a big British bank. And there will be um, a number of other, and Danske Bank, which is a, brick, a big Danish bank. Um, and there will be a number of other banks joining. Uh, we've had a number of the big Dutch banks that already joined much earlier on. But we are in discussions with a lot of other big banks in Europe as well. I think what we've seen is some in the US, um, the, the concept of, harmonizing an approach actually works quite well if if a lot of banks starting have started to look at this at the same time and that is probably what we've seen in the us it's, you know this, this all came at the right time it's the right thing at the right time it was embraced by big banks and now actually we see the us going very very quickly compared to some of their european counterparts outside the us and europe um we're, we've got a target of um, 200 global banks signing up in the next couple of years. Um, we're talking to um, and are in discussions with very large banks and a number of um, non-US and non-European banks have signed up already. Um, but we're also in discussion with banks all over the world at this moment in time. Um, the, the large bank, bank in Colombia joined recently as well. So there definitely is also a lot of activity in Latin America.
And uh, globally, you, you think that financial institutions will going forward take it as one of the ethics of their business to look at carbon production and carbon restriction and decarbonization. Yeah, and I think what some, so the, the one big financial institution that we haven't mentioned yet, that obviously has been making waves with, with their stance around carbon is BlackRock. I mean, the chief executive of BlackRock, Larry Fink, has, I think it was two years ago, it was his first letter, his annual letter to CEOs, basically said, you know, to, to all the companies that they invest in, you need to start looking at climate change, you need to take it into account. He has reiterated that in his most recent letter to CEOs. Um, you know, when very large financial organizations and when very large banks start to not only account, but also start to disclose and act upon, then it really is something that is going to be moving very, very rapidly across, across the world. When I or other reporters talk about climate change with people, you often get the pushback, which is, ah, but China and India aren't on board. Is China on board? Um, if you look at a bunch of statistics, uh, let's, for example, look at, you know, the amount of new solar that's been built in China versus a lot of other countries. I mean, if you look at implementation of renewable energy, a, a country like China is, is, is making big strides. It is making big strides. They're also working on the development of their own emissions trading scheme. Um, are they on board? Yes, they are on board. Um, are complex discussions around Right to, admit, right to emit carbon and historic contribution to climate change. Yes, there are very complex um, discussions around it, especially in the international political arena. And that's definitely not sorted. But it's way too easy to say that countries like China and India are not doing anything. But I can see you know, international banks investing in India. Harder for them to do that in China, particularly in the current climate. Uh, are the Chinese banks interested? Are you? talking to them? Are they part of PCAP or likely to become? We're, def we're definitely talking to them, yeah. We're definitely talking to a lot of international banks that include Chinese and, um, and Indian banks. Is this a sales job? You go to banks and say, you should do this, it's virtuous? Um, or do you go to them and say, long term, this will be much better for your investments and therefore your own bottom line? Um, I think it's, to be honest, probably a bit of both. Um, what really helps is when big brands, when big banks join an initiative like this. So, so when a Citibank and and uh, Citibank, this makes a big difference. A big, that makes a big difference in the discussions. Um, it's and it's not that banks don't see the importance of the necessity of greenhouse gas emissions accounting. It's more that um, they need to, you need to have a conversation with them about the usefulness of them actually joining an international consortium of banks rather than anything else. I mean, I think what we've seen with, in discussion with a lot of banks is that very often a discussion starts with, yes, we're already doing greenhouse gas accounting. Um, and, but then the, the next question is like, what is the methodology that you use? And very often it's ad hoc or it's, uh, it's something that is not necessarily 100% suitable for the concept of finance emissions. So it's not necessarily a sales job, mostly it's not necessarily a sales job to convince people that greenhouse gas emissions accounting is something that they need to do. It's more that it makes sense to do it in a harmonized way and to do it, 
as part of a commitment, as part of a process where first you focus on accounting, then you focus on disclosing, then you focus on target setting, then you focus on taking action. And I think that, that storyline is more, more important. You've just passed or are approaching, but I think you've just passed is some sort of milestone in terms of the accounting. What is that? Yeah, we've just launched um, our um, public consultation documents. Uh, and so I, I definitely urge everybody to go and have a look at the website because we've basically published um, our draft methodology for consultation. So it's super important that we get as much feedback on that as possible um, because it's a, these met methodologies become stronger and stronger the more people who have actually looked into this, who understand this, who see the importance of this, actually contribute to this. A lot of young people want to get into environmentalism. It's, it's a great passion and the correct one and an exciting one. What would your advice be? You've been at the cutting edge for a long time where it's very effective, which maybe is more effective than, than uh, you know, demonstrating outside of corporate headquarters. The latter may be more fun, but uh, its effectiveness more dubious. Uh, what is your advice? I mean, so you're right. I mean, I started working in this field in the late 90s, and I definitely have to say that during, a, during the first 10, 15 years of my career, I was often seen by my friends as someone who was rather old to have chosen a career in that direction. Um, and that is definitely not the case anymore. I mean, I think before I answer your question, just take one step back. A lot of the companies we work with, one of the one of the reasons why they want to engage in decarbonization and greenhouse gas emission reductions is because they see their workforce of the future. They ask for this. It's, it's, it's the millennials who really want to see that the organization that they work for is not just greenwashing something, but is actually doing something real. I, I think where, let's say 10 years or 15 years ago, you really had to look for a dedicated job in sustainability or in energy, or mm -hmm. you had to go to a dedicated advisory firm that was focused on it. Right now, you can find it anywhere. If you go to a food and beverage company, their sustainability department is not a greenwashing um, part of a company. It's real. So you can really find that part of your passion. You can find it anywhere. So it's important to understand what, what it is that you want to do. Do you want to be involved in finance? Do you want to be involved in food and beverage? Do you want to be involved in energy production? You will always be able to find a place there where you can contribute to a greener, cleaner, better world. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. It really most enlightening. I thank you so much for the time, Jan Willem. Thank you for joining the White House Chronicle. Cheers. Thank you for your time. That's our show for today. Thank you for being on board. And please wear your mask. You don't want to be infected with COVID-19 and you don't want to infect somebody else. This too will pass. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.